And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Here's a disclaimer right at the top of this podcast. Tim Kaine is a friend of mine. Uh, I've known him since 2008 when he was an early supporter of Barack Obama in his presidential race. He was a candidate for vice president even then, and I had a chance to talk with him in that context and get to to know him. Uh, He is one of the most ebullient, public-spirited people that I've ever met. So I was happy to catch up with him on the campaign trail last week to talk about his life, his career, this campaign, and what the future holds uh, should Hillary Clinton get elected president on November 8th. We're here with Tim Kaine. Welcome. We're coming to you, by the way, from the boardroom. And for you Apprentice fans, not that boardroom, <laughs> but a, a boardroom at a hotel in North Carolina where you're about to begin uh, your campaign day. And I want to talk to you about the campaign, but first I want to talk to you a little bit about yourself. Um, you come from Kansas. You, you were mainly raised in Kansas City. I do, and David, all my family is still there. I'm kind of the one that got away 32 years ago moving to Virginia. We, Mid- we Midwesterners sense that Midwestern sensibility <laughs> in you. But what? tell me, uh, I, I'm in, your dad was uh, uh, in the welding business. Yeah. yeah, my dad, Al, who's alive, 82. My mom and dad, both healthy, 82 years old. Um, he had a, a union-organized ironworking and welding shop in the stockyards of Kansas City that was a class. American small business. There were five employees in a in a uh, tough year, and maybe nine or ten in a good year. And my mother and my two brothers and me. So we all grew up working in Dad's shop. Um, and uh, you know, my dad, great work ethic, never cut corners, really preached excellence and doing a good job by customers. And uh, and then my mom was a home ec teacher, but by the time the three boys came in quick succession. Three boys is a handful. Yeah, very much. And so she ended up after the uh, we were done, you know, going back to work a little bit and has always been very involved in, in charity and philanthropic work. But my parents are great, Irish Catholic. Um, Catholicism is big in your, in yeah. your, in your story. Um, was it something that was a very a big presence, faith in your home? Yes. Uh, my mom and dad are both very uh, devout Catholics, and we had a you know neighborhood parish that we were part of. In fact, really growing up, it was sort of like I hardly knew that there were non-Catholics in the world. We really were very much in the, in the Catholic milieu. Um, I went to uh, elementary schools, public elementary schools, but then when I was getting ready to go to high school, my parents over my objection, decided that I should go to an all-boys uh, Jesuit high school, Rockhurst High School in Kansas City, which is connected with Rockhurst College. And while I resisted the notion of especially uh, single-sex education, and I liked the public schools I was in, I hadn't been at that school for a week when I realized, wow, this is really fantastic. Why? The Jesuits at the time and still, um, and I just find this all over the world, and as I talk to people who've had Jesuit education, they confirm this, they have a tradition that merges intellectual rigor and social justice. And they just kind of put both of those together in a magical way. This was certainly the case in the 1970s uh, when I went to Rockhurst High School. And I loved the intellectual challenge, but I also really liked the spiritual dimension that was, an, that, that was trying to express itself in practical works of mercy, trying to help other people out. You probably saw the uh, Archbishop uh, from Kansas City uh, called you the other day a cafeteria yeah. Catholic, meaning that you pick and choose those yeah. 
those uh, doctrines that you uh, that you practice and that you don't. And it was a reference to your uh, comments you made in the debate about about choice, uh, yeah, which is something you've been dealing with throughout your. Mm-hmm. Political career. How did you feel when you saw that? I wasn't surprised. Look, there, this my church also doesn't mind vigorous debate. I mean, that's something that that's the church I was raised in doesn't mind vigorous debate about things. And you know, the way I look at my own church experience and then my responsibilities as a public official is, I'm going to live in accord with the doctrines of my church, um, and the church has the right to demand that those of us who um, you know, call ourselves Catholics or whatever the religion, live in accord with their teachings. But I feel very strongly that the First Amendment to the Constitution that guarantees everybody the right to worship as they please or not, and that says you can't establish one religion over others, it means that in the public sphere, we're not supposed to just legislate Catholic Church doctrine and tell everybody you got to follow it. So I'll live in accord with my faith, but I don't think my job as an elected official is to dictate to others how they should solve important moral questions. Abortion is an important moral question, um, and and I think churches should be active in kind of talking about what they think about it. But at the end of the day, I don't think we ought to use the criminal law uh, to criminalize and prosecute and even jail women for making health care decisions. And that's that was what the rule was before Roe versus Wade was decided. So I think Roe versus Wade says keep this in the moral realm, but don't use the criminal law to punish women for their health care decisions. And I, I feel that that is uh, that's the right thing for civil society. And I don't think, uh, bottom line, I don't think the church, any church, can demand that civil society just enact its own laws for everybody. It's such a freighted issue, you know. Uh, I mean, uh, I consider myself pro-choice, mm-hmm. but I. But I'm always troubled by the sort of ease with which people on both sides talk about this mm-hmm. because it's it's a very, very complex uh, issue and probably more yeah. complex as medical science advances. It is, although, you know, one of the one of the things I would hope folks who call themselves pro-life or pro-choice could uh, unify around is the number of abortions and the number of unplanned yes. pregnancies in the nation is reducing. Uh, in fact, fairly significantly. That's been, you know, uh, something during the Obama presidency that I, I think uh, doesn't get enough attention. I think if you make health care access available to women. I think if women have easy access to contraception, what you see is that the statistics here and elsewhere suggest that unplanned pregnancies and abortions reduce. And I think that that's good. There are, so there are some things where we can agree. I think we ought to be able to agree. Um, and, um, but th- this issue, as a moral issue, it's not going to go away. But um, I don't think it's the job of uh, elected officials to mandate that women make make choices. Women can make those for themselves. So faith was big in your home. What, what about politics? Was politics discussed? N- very little. You know, my parents were classic Kansas Republicans in the day when that meant Bob Dole, Nancy Kassebaum, very moderate Republicans. And um, we didn't really talk about politics at all. It was baseball, church, school, the chiefs, you know, what are neighbors doing. Um, I, I remember virtually no discussions about politics, but the news was on at night, and it was the Vietnam War, and it was the Civil Rights Movement. So I remember sharply the assassinations of JFK, Martin Luther King, and Bobby Kennedy when you were a kid. Right. Those are so graphic We're of the and same so age, challenging, yeah, yeah. right? So I remember those. And a sense that the combination of the Civil Rights Movement in Vietnam there was a real sense of, wow, it's, it, there's times of turmoil and challenge in the country. And so that was probably part of an early 
political consciousness for me, being aware of these big social things going on, even if they seem removed from the neighborhood I was living in. You went off to Harvard, and you did an unusual thing, because once you get to Harvard Law School, people, I don't mean to impugn, the I don't say this in a pejorative yeah. way, but most young people are looking for law firms to become associates at mm-hmm. and summer associates and so on and advance their careers. You took a year off in the middle of that uh, to to do missionary work in Honduras. What, what prompted you to do that? You know, I, I went through University of Missouri in three years and went right to Harvard. And I, a couple of things happened. I got there and I was probably the youngest person in my class of 550 because of having gone right to school after three years of college. I met a lot of people who had taken time off to work or be in the Peace Corps or, you know, do all kinds of things. And I started to ask myself, why, why am I rushing? But then secondly, David, I, there was a big flurry of activity in the in the first semester of my first year in law school of, hey, wow, we can get jobs at law firms and they'll pay us eight or nine hundred dollars a week. You know, we've never gotten that much money, and there was a lot of excitement about that. And I just knew that's not what I'm interested in. I don't know exactly know what I'm interested in, but I know that that's not what I'm interested in. And but I didn't because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I decided, you know, if I take a year off and maybe work with these missionaries in Honduras who had a connection to my high school, my Jesuit high school, well, maybe I'll, I'll figure it out. So about the 1st of December, I mean, I'd been on campus maybe three months, and I liked, I liked law school fine, but I just needed to figure things out. So I wrote these guys down in Honduras, and I said, can I just come and volunteer? And they wrote back and said, sure. And then, you know, we just set up the date that I would show up. And I showed up not knowing what I would do. And not knowing Spanish at that point, right? I knew four years of high school Spanish, but had never been in any in any setting where I'd had to use it other than in my classroom. So it was a very uh, kind of going out on faith experience, but I felt like it would be good for me. And I arrived there, and they're like, okay, well, what do you do? Well, I'm at Harvard Law School. Well, that's completely irrelevant. That's not going to help us at all. Uh, my dad runs a welding shop. Okay, now we got a plan for you. There was a, a technical school they had just started that was teaching carpentry. There was about 25 kids there, and the principal was leaving to go into the priesthood, so he had to go do his studies. And they said, you run this school. So within two weeks of arriving, I am now basically the the principal of this tiny fledgling technical school. And over the course of the year that I was there, I you know, added welding to it, added a night program for adults, recruited more students. But it was an amazing experience. Were, how, were you, how many uh, Americans were around? Well, the Jesuits I, I were there with were an interesting mixture. There was not a big, at that point, native priesthood in that part of Honduras, the Yoro province of Honduras. So the Jesuits had agreed, we'll staff the churches in this rural part of the community. And the Jesuits were either from the St. Louis, uh, the Missouri province of the Jesuits, which at that point stretched from Denver to St. Louis, so kind of mm-hmm. Midwest, or they were from the uh, the uh, uh, the area of Spain, the Basque country, mm-hmm and the Galician uh, northwest corner of Spain. So it was Spaniards and Americans. The Spaniards were super liberation theology, really yeah. intellectual explain, type. By guys. the way, explain liberation theology. Well, it was, it's, it's a, a movement of, of Christian theology that was very prominent um, in Latin America when I was there and still is that basically looks at the gospel as good news, especially to the poor. And so let let, let me, I mean, maybe I can give you an example. What I first realized what liberation theology was. 
here, there's a great New Testament Sounds kind of left, man. It, it, it was left. Yeah. It was left. And, <laughs> and it was funny. The Spaniards were that way, where the American guys, the St. Louis guys, were like, you know, super practical. Like, we don't want to get into the theology. But liberation theology would look at readings in the Bible and just give them a, a fundamentally different read. There's a wonderful story in the New Testament called, about the woman at the well. Jesus and his disciples go into a town in Samaria, and there's a woman getting water by herself because she's kind of a she got a bad reputation, so she doesn't go when the other women go to the well. She and Jesus get in this big dialogue, and the disciples are mad. Jesus, she's a Samaritan, and she's a woman, and she has a bad reputation. Why are you spending time with her? I had heard that message preached in churches in the United States all the time, and the message that was preached to us was, don't be like the disciples looking down on other people. You should be more welcoming like Jesus. Now, that's a very good reading of that story. So I go to Honduras. One of the first Sundays I was there, there's the reading. And the message that the priest preached is, maybe you feel like that woman at the well. You kind of feel like you're an outcast. You've kind of been kicked around. You kind of feel down. Who does Jesus go to? He doesn't go to the, the, the high and mighty. He goes to the woman at the well. So where you are in the story, that's kind of what liberation theology was about. And it tended to take virtually every story and center it in the experience of the person that was kicked in at the side of the road in the Good Samaritan story, or that was the outcast in the woman at the well, or the leper that gets healed. And sort of where you see yourself in the story gives you a very different interpretation of kind of what the message is. And these are great stories that are susceptible to many readings, so they're very legit. But the guys I was with, the Spaniards, were really, they were left. They were in a persona non grata with the government. And it was a turbulent time down there. In fact, you you were influenced by... Uh, a, a, a figure down there who was who disappeared. Yeah, no, there, there. It was a, it was a very turbulent time. It was a military dictatorship. Um, uh, some of the Jesuits I lived with were arrested by the military um, and let go. But there was a Jesuit from St. Louis who'd been kicked out of uh, Honduras. That at one point I had to go to Nicaragua to get my passport renewed. Just take a bus, you go to the other nation, and you get a renewal at the Honduran embassy in Managua. And I spent time with this one. American priest, Guadalupe Carne, James Carney from St. Louis. And about two years after um, I left uh, Honduras to come back here, he was murdered by the Honduran military under very suspicious circumstances. I had met some of the priests, the Jesuits, who were killed by the Salvadoran death squads at the University of Central America in November of 1989. Um, There were civil wars in Guatemala, civil war in El Salvador, military dictatorship in Honduras. The U.S. was using Honduras as a staging ground to build up the, the folks to take on the Sandinistas in Nicaragua. So it was a very complicated time. And I kind of walk into it as a naive 21-year-old. Yeah, it that wasn't, just this wasn't Kansas out. City anymore. Yeah. This was... It was definitely different. It, it, was, it wasn't Kansas City. And as I was standing there with my kids, with the noise of everybody hammering and sawing, I was like, this ain't Harvard Law School either. It's a school. But boy, I'm about as far away from Harvard and Law School as I And how formative was that for you, that whole experience? It was very, very formative. I think about it every day. Um, there were a couple of the Jesuits, the guy who started the school Hermano Jaime O'Leary, a, a great kid from St. Louis kid. I mean, he was a, probably 45 when I was there. He's now deceased. He had started the school and let me run it. Wonderful, wonderful guy, probably um, in just life and values other than my dad and my father-in-law and my, my parents, the great hero of my life. There's another priest, Patricia Wade, who was a guy who taught me a lot, but also my students and their families. You know, I had a I had a teacher that I worked with at the school, a guy named Memo Guillermo, and he came in one Monday, and he was really down. 
And I was like, hey, what's going on? He said, oh, one of my children died this week, you know, and he was just showing up Monday for work. And I said, well, what did, you know, what did your child die of? He said, diarrhea. Um, and you just think of, you know, when the, condi- the sanitary conditions are mm-hmm. so bad that, that just dysentery and normal diseases like that, that, you know, we take Pepto-Bismol or something and it would be nothing here. That could be fatal. And um, so I learned a tremendous amount from my students and their families about faith, about hard work, about Sounds like about, about empathy. Oh, yeah, no. Gosh. Which is, it's been a word that's been kicked around uh, as a kind of pejorative in our politics, oh. but it's an important quality. It, it is. It is. Putting yourself in somebody else's shoes and... Um, and, you know, the classic experience, I think many of us have this. You, you go, I think, I'm going to go help somebody out, and then you find out you're the one that's getting exactly. the help. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back with Tim Kaine. When you left Harvard, obviously you were influenced by your experience. You, you didn't go, as many uh, Harvard students do, onto a law firm corporate work. Yeah. You became a civil rights lawyer, mm-hmm. returned to Virginia with your wife yeah and who was a who was a student at Harvard as well um, were you did you have her father had been governor of Republican first Republican governor of Virginia he, and did you go to Virginia with politics in mind no I really went I mean to be a civil rights lawyer I I, I decided when I was in Honduras let me use my legal skills to help others I read the a great Martin Luther King quote when I was in Honduras the most segregated hour of the week is 11 o'clock Sunday morning and being a church kind of person, that really struck me. And so I just decided I'm going to try to be a civil rights lawyer. Battle for African Americans, basically, was kind of what I wanted to do. And um, I started working on that in law school, met Anne. Anne's family has a real interesting civil rights pedigree. Yeah. And we decided to go back to Virginia. To, Her father, you know, Linwood Holton, helped desegregate. Uh, schools in Virginia. Yeah. This is one reason why I never claim any party's got a monopoly on vice or virtue. The Democratic governors of Virginia had maintained segregated schools 16 years after Brown versus Board, maintaining segregation through all kinds of tricks, everything they could. Lynn got in, and within 10 months, he had basically said, no, we're going to integrate Virginia schools. And he used his own kids kind of as an example. No, you know, there's a great front page picture in the New York Times of Lynn escorting my wife's sister into what had been previously essentially an all-black high school with a big smile on his face. There's a lot of pictures in the Times of Southern governors blocking African-American kids from walking into schools, but there's only one of a Southern governor walking his own child into the school with a big smile saying, you know, hey, education's for everybody. And my wife was part of the generation of kids that integrated Virginia schools. And that had a huge impact on her. So we went back to Virginia to do civil rights work. I practiced uh, in private practice for 17 years doing civil rights work, three quarters of what I did, civil rights stuff, mostly housing discrimination. And Ann was a legal aid lawyer, um, you know, helping especially families and kids, you know, uh, big class action suits against government aid agencies that were pushing families and kids around. And, uh, And this is what I thought I'd be doing my whole life. But I also was representing a little homeless shelter in Richmond that would occasionally have things up before the Richmond City Council. And I would go to city council meetings, and I would see my city council very divided along racial lines. And at some point, I'd lived in Richmond for about 10 years, and I just like, gosh, I think I can do better. I think I can be a bridge builder in a city with a painful past. And that was what got me to run my first race in 1994. And you became... uh you were a city council member, and then you became mayor, elected by the city council. Yeah. 
as mayor, what is the what were the racial uh, what were the demographics of Richmond when you became mayor? The city is about sixty percent minority, um, and the city council was majority uh, African American, and. Um, the, and, you know, and I, I was treated in a very graceful way by that council because the city council of Richmond had been majority white for like, you know, 250 years yeah. and had never allowed an African-American to be mayor. And so the city had become majority African-American only in the mid-late 70s. And here I was, you know, not only was I a white guy, but I'm from Kansas City. I mean, I'm not really a Virginian. And I'm making my case to my colleagues, hey, you know, I think I'll be a good mayor. And um, there was some controversy, frankly, about whether the mayor should be white, given yeah. the previous history sure. of the white community never trusting the African, an African-American to be mayor. But I, I had a reputation because of my civil rights work. The district that I represented was a real interesting mixture of the biggest mansions in Richmond and the biggest public housing community between D.C. and Atlanta. And people thought, I think the guy can be fair. Um, and so my, the African-American leadership of Richmond extended a privilege to me that they, that they had never been extended. When you were mayor, Very did, humbling. did you have to con- confront uh, what we see today in terms of police community relations? Because this did, is not I a did. new problem. It's only no. new because now the rest of the world sees what the African-American yeah. community has seen for a long time. Huge, we had a huge problem. When I got elected city council, second highest uh, homicide rate in the United States. And the homicides were concentrated in our minority communities. And so, and we had to let a police chief go and get somebody in who we felt could help turn it around. And we basically used a strategy, David. The good news is to solve these problems today, we don't have to recreate the wheel. We used a strategy, community policing. The whole goal was really build up bonds of affection and trust between the police and the community. And if you do that, it's not just a feel-good thing. Then somebody in the community is going to feel comfortable calling the police and saying, hey, there's something going on down the block that I hope you'll come check out. Or if there's a crime and somebody's witnessed it, somebody will be willing to testify. When you build up those bonds, then it gets easier to solve problems and the community feels safer. But there's a there's a competing law enforcement model in so many cities that's an adversarial model zero tolerance we want to crack down on the little things well but these communities are also ravaged by crime not just these incidents but they need strong policing they need security they they do but there is a philosophy of policing i i mean i'm you know i'm not a police professional but i can look as a mayor and governor and say i see two competing philosophies around policing community policing is one and a zero tolerance model is another but that model is inherently adversarial and so it doesn't mean you should tolerate small things but if you define the mission as what we're going to do is crack down on little things before they get to be the big things. Then you end up widening the gulf between the community and police. And that gulf is dangerous to the community and it's dangerous to the police. Do you think back in the 90s, uh, probably when you were mayor, the community, uh, the crime bill passed and community policing was part of it. And the federal yes. government provided the funding for yeah, 100,000 yeah. new police. Do you think we need another initiative like that? I, I do. Um, I think we, uh, we definitely do. Because here's the other thing. To do community policing right, it's not just about the number of police. It's also about training. You, right. you just can't do this automatically. When we went through the collapse of the economy in the uh, 2000s, what is the first thing any agency does if they're under budget pressure? They don't want to lay people off. They don't want to cut salaries. So they cut training and anything else that seems like, well, I can do without it. So um, 
we, we, we cut training budgets in so many police departments, and this is not the police department's fault. Obviously, there's a recession. They're trying to manage mm-hmm. that. And so a lot of the support for community policing went by the board. So I think, and Hillary and I both believe this very deeply, what we need to do, it's not necessarily the 100,000 cops, but we really need to support the police departments that are doing community policing and show others that aren't, hey, here's how you can do it. And it's definitely going to be training and technical assistance. You, uh, you went on to get elected lieutenant governor of Virginia by a, a slim margin. Yeah, and, that's, and, my, that's my especially slim margin. <laughs> yeah, well, Virginia was a, was a, a more competitive state when you're there, still competitive in yeah. state uh, elections apparently a little less competitive this year uh, in the presidential election. I'm going to jump forward in the story mm-hmm. and say that um, in as go- and you you, you had a, a a fine record as governor uh, here. So I'm, I let's stipulate that, but for mm-hmm. purposes of time, yeah. Um, when I met you, uh, I was uh, in 2008. You were the first major elected official outside of Illinois who endorsed Barack Obama for president, I think, in late February of uh, 2000. I I told him I would do it in October of 06, and then when he announced in February of 07. I'd gotten to know him. Uh, Barack, when I first time I met him, I said, hey, I hear you giving this speech about, you know, my dad's from Kenya, my mom's from Kansas. Where's your mom from? He said, El Dorado. I said, that's where my mom's from. So my mother and maternal grandparents are from the same town as his. And then there was just something about that that just sparked a connection. And I just, I I have... huge admiration and affection for the president. It's not like we, you know, hang around or, you know, chum around a lot, but I just, I know how his mind works. I, I think I understand the guy and he definitely gets me. He well, definitely understands Well, you know, uh, my first actual conversation with you was when David Pluff and I came to the governor's mansion in 2008 because you were a finalist for vice president. Yeah. Then, do you, I don't know if you remember, do you remember the first thing that you said to me? You probably don't. No. Well, I will tell you what you said is, you know, I'm really honored that you guys are considering me and that Barack is considering me, but uh, I wouldn't pick me if I were him. And, and we said, <laughs> why? And you said, because I'm too much like him. Yeah. yeah. I'm too much like him. And, and ultimately, that's, you know, yeah. that's what he thought, too. Mm-hmm. You said, how many Harvard-educated sort of civil rights lawyers can you have? <laughs> yeah. Uh, on a ticket. so And I'm like him in another way. I, I've 32 years of marriage and a whole lot of teamwork and a whole lot of different venues has taught me something important. I think the best teams are similar values and different temperaments. Um, Barack and I are similar values and similar temperaments. But I actually think the, the reason that the, that the um, Obama-Biden relationship has worked well, so I think they have similar values, but they have different temperaments. What the different temperaments gives you is the ability to look you know, at all sides of a challenge and mm-hmm. you know, make sure you're seeing all the sides of it. And that really ends up being a strong team. And so I, I, you know, I thought a, a President Obama would need a national security expertise that I didn't have You were governor, time. Yeah. yeah. You were governor. I have that new now, governor. right? Yeah. Yeah, no. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I... Uh, yeah, I, w- I must say that was a very impressive to us, though. <laughs> that wasn't what we expected uh, when, we, when we came in. Do you think he's been treated differently uh, because of the fact that he is an African-American? I, I do. I do. Um, I, I think there's, uh, there's been a, a level of disrespect shown him that I find 
saddening. Um, but that's not by everybody. Um, I, I still view his presidency uh, in every way, not just his election, but also his presidency as an advance beyond uh, what we were before. Um, the very fact of his election, the very night he was elected, he created a, a class of successors who'd never been able to see themselves as president of the United States, who now could. And then he's done number, a number of good things. There have been ways he's been treated that I, uh, you know, that make me feel bad. But still, net net. Did they surprise it, you based on your own no, experiences? No, absolutely not. I mean, I you know, I see the I see the world as through the perspective of a guy who's been a civil rights lawyer in the South. I haven't been surprised at it. Um, there have been some things about it that, you know, they, they, they disappoint me. But still, if you put it net-net, his election, the people's reaction to him, if you look at his approval He's ratings quite now. popular now. Yeah, it's, it's been an advance beyond what we had before in terms of our, our ability to, you know, work together. The obvious question is um, you're now running with the uh, woman who he was running against yeah, yeah. Uh, at the time. I presume you would make the same decision again. It, it, it's really interesting. I, it was a hard decision uh, back, you know, in 2006 in one sense because I didn't really know Hillary very well back then, but I knew, you know, what an amazing public servant she was. And so in that sense, it w- I felt like I'm choosing between two really great people. But I knew Barack so well by then, and I didn't really know Hillary. And so that made it a little bit easier. Um, but I think this – I'm so excited to be Hillary's running mate. You know, one of the things... Well, I'm I, not going to let you... Yeah. <laughs> say, I, I thought that was artful. Yeah, I'm, I'm very uh, artful. But, yeah. uh, but, but do you feel you made the right decision? Yeah, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything about, the, uh, about that decision along the way. And I feel like this moment is the moment for Hillary Clinton to be president for so, for so many reasons. I mean, isn't it odd, David, that here we're in a race where we're going to make history, I believe you know, doing everything I can to make sure that we can, electing the first woman president of the United States in a race where the other side is somebody in Donald Trump that has so much baggage in terms of women. I don't think Donald Trump can look at a woman and see an equal. So this is a a real pairing of personalities. Do we make history or do we sort of go backward on the issue of women's equality? The other thing that I'm really mindful of, the next president is the president that gets to lead the commemoration of the centennial of women getting the right to vote. I think it would be poetically just for the person leading that centennial to be Hillary Clinton. So there's just in the way history works out, I think this is the perfect time right now. It is the perfect time for Hillary to be president. I'll tell you something else that I feel about my own role. When Hillary asked me to be a running mate, you know, what, what kind of flashed through my mind was I've been in politics for 22 years. This is my ninth race. In all the previous eight races, I've been the guy with my name on the ballot and the bumper sticker and the yard sign. And I've had all these strong women supporting me, campaign managers, cabinet secretaries, agency heads. The voters that we get are more women than men. And I remember thinking, wow, I'm going to be – I'm going to have the chance now to not be the top of the ticket person. I know you have an H on your lapel there, not a K. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be a strong man supporting the first strong woman to be president of the United States. And as important as it is to normalize that a woman can be president, it's also important to normalize that strong men can support a woman as president. And given how many strong women, starting with my wife, have supported me, I really like that aspect of this, of this team. I'm going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with Tim Kaine. You obviously have gotten to know Hillary Clinton 
well, uh, and I've known her for a very long time too. Um, there, you look at the numbers, uh, you know, not the top line numbers of how she's doing against Donald Trump, but there's this. Uh, you know, her unfavorables are quite high. The highest she'd come in with the highest unfavorables of any president, and there is a very l- large negative rating when it comes to trustworthiness and and honesty. What do you what do you see that the public isn't seeing, and why aren't sure. they seeing it? Sure. Well, I'm going to say first, and I'm going to answer your question directly. I'm not sure anybody's going to ever run for president again with good approval ratings. Post-Citizens United, what can be done to just dump anything on anybody, whether it's true or not, and do it at such quantity? Um, I, I, I worry a little bit that every race in the future is going to be between people who are viewed unfavorably. And the question is, you know, who is more unfavorable than the other? So just that, from I, someone who could be a presidential candidate. Yeah. No, I, I worry about our politics and whether our politics and the way it's financed is going that way. But to but, your, but some of these wounds are self-inflicted. Well, her yeah, numbers were in positive. Her, her favorable was positive. Before, and then the revelation of the email became fodder and, and they turned very negative. What, what I see in Hillary, I'll, I'll give you two things. Um, first, I view character in public life. The best way to view somebody's character is, do they have a passion? And do they have a passion that showed up before they were in politics? And have they held on to that passion come hell or high water, whether they're winning or losing, in office or out? And Hillary's got a passion, and it's the empowerment of families and kids. You know, she got asked in the debate the other night kind of a closing argument, just give us a minute. And she said, I spent my whole life trying to empower families Mm -hmm. and children. And that has been the consistent theme through her life. And so I know that when she wakes up and when she's turning in, she's going to be thinking about that. And we've never had a president who has made that their life work. And so that is a way of looking at character that I find compelling. And I see that in her. Second thing I see in her, here's here's a missing part of politics, but it's a missing part of life. We don't have enough good listeners in the world. Hillary's a good listener. She is a good listener. I I have been with her on a number of occasions and seen her interact with, you know, uh, regular folks in ways that make me very touched about her listening and 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 you know good heart and good ear. And I'll tell you one funny story. We went on a bus tour right after the convention, and it was my wife Ann and me and Hillary and President Clinton. And one day, we were in western Pennsylvania, I think it was Somerset County, and Bill said, Somerset County, let me tell you about Somerset County. And he went on about a 40-minute just dissecting yes, precincts, 92, 96. Oh, and it was like a Ph.D. class, right? Well, the next day, we're over in Ohio, and we're all sitting together. And I asked some question about Ohio, and Hillary goes, that's a really good question. Hey, Aaron, get over. She called the staffer. He's like a 28-year-old kid. Here, sit in this chair. We want to ask you some questions. Then Hillary just started asking one really penetrating question after the next, and I was asking questions too. And it went on for just about the same period of time, maybe about 45 Mm -hmm. minutes. Well, at the end of that, we had a ton of information. And Hillary had elicited in a skillful way, but we had one other thing, which is we had a 28-year-old kid who thought, man, I feel 10 feet tall. The president of the United States, a future president of the United States, a future vice president of the United States just made me the center of attention and asked me a lot of questions, and I got to show what I know. 
And to me, that's a really, really cool Hillary story. And I've seen her do it with staffers. I've seen her do it with people at the State Department. I've seen her do it with regular citizens on the trail. Listening is a trait that's in short supply these days. Well, and the remarkable thing about that story is that Bill Clinton let the kid uh, do the <laughs> Well, do he was the asking questions, too. <laughs> but, but, but here's my question. Mm-hmm. You've seen her. You've spent time with her. You know her. Um, and I understand that she's been bombarded with negative yeah. media. Yeah. But what is it about her? Her Sometimes her own presentation in public is much different. And I don't mean like what was in the WikiLeaks stuff, that she has a public and a private. But I mean her persona is different. She seems more comfortable in these smaller settings. Yeah. She seems more – what is it about – is she just so guarded from all of this bombardment? Well, or yeah, there, there's some of it. I think some of it's being a woman. I think you grow up – now, she's 10 years older than me. So I think about my wife's own experiences, and then I go, okay, now 10 years before what it would have been like. You know, uh, boy, if you're going to try to make it, it's a man's world. Don't show your emotions. You got – you know, I think there were a whole series of things. Things that uh, women in Hillary's generation have had to bust down a lot of barriers and and do things. And I'll add to it, I think I kind of get Hillary for another reason. She's a Midwestern kid who grew up in a manufacturing household with Republican parents, and church was really important in their life. We Midwesterners, and I know you grew up in uh, in New York. I grew up in New York, yes. Uh, and, And now a Midwesterner, but you know, our milieu is don't talk about yourself. The, the, the politics of today is, you know, tell your personal story and make everybody feel great about your personal story. I mean, Barack Obama is so good at that. Right. And so many others are so good at that. That's not her natural M.O., uh, nor is it mine. I like talking. I mean, I wouldn't be a senator, but I'd rather talk about others or policies or whatever. I don't think it's natural But you're a warm person, and you do share your story, and you're very open. It was very striking when you were announced as a VP candidate yeah. to see her reading off of her text. And you were you, you obviously had a speech as well, but you were very... I just, you know, the, the reason I ask is because I, I think she probably will be president based yeah. on the polling now. Uh, and... Uh, how do you how do you regain trust? Mm-hmm. How do you assure people who are um, who who have questions about whether you're straightforward about yeah. whether you're going to yeah. be? I mean, what's do you think there are specific things that she can do? Well, look, we we've got to regain trust in the enterprise, you know. So there's a personal component for her and me, but we got to regain trust in the enterprise too. Um, the enterprise I mean, meaning government. Government. I mean, there is a there there is some connection between Bernie Sanders' success and Donald Trump's success in in the campaign. They're very different people. I'm on I'm on the budget committee with Bernie and a huge fan of his. They're very different from a policy standpoint. However, they both are laying a critique against. Washington that doesn't work in regular people's interests. And that critique is finding some some real traction. And so uh, I'd say that Hillary and I have to do that. We've got to regain trust in the enterprise of government by, of, and for the people. And that and that is, to some degree, the, the rhetoric and tone and the degree to which we're reaching out, which we need to do. But it also ultimately is about accomplishment, um, especially around issues of economic anxiety, because a lot of Donald Trump's voters, they they have an anxiety about economics there, either because of the zip code they live in or maybe the industry that they were trained up in. Or because of these revolutionary changes in our economy sure. that have marginalized a lot of jobs that were good middle-class jobs. Yeah, when I got elected governor, I'm going to give you an example. I got elected governor. We were mining about as much coal in Virginia as we mined in the 1950s, but with one-tenth of workers because of mechanization. Mm-hmm. This was before anybody was griping about the EPA. This was before natural gas pricing dropped or we were worried about climate. Just the sheer mechanization had reduced those wow. jobs, and we're seeing that all over the country. So we have got to work 
And the only way to do this will be bipartisan because, you know, I think we're going to take the Senate, but we won't have 60 votes. You need 60 votes to legislate. We're going to have to put a meaningful economic package on the table. Infrastructure will be a key part of it, but other things too. Certainly skills training, education, that will give people a sense that there's a ladder for them to climb. Uh, President Obama, 15 million new private sector jobs, unemployment rate cut in half. He's done so much good. But he would say wage growth hasn't been where it needs to be. Yeah, we saw saw 14 to 15, the first time you're seeing wage growth really tick up and the poverty rate drop, that's great. But we got a long way to go. And we have to show people that there's a ladder for them to climb. Too many people in this country still don't see that ladder. Um, What... What is Donald Trump up to, do you think, when he uh, has suggested the election's rigged, that he might not accept the results? What what is he trying to accomplish? Well, I'd say it's pretty simple, is that he is a whiner and a complainer, and he won't take responsibility for anything. So he's always going to blame somebody else. And and the, the, the way he's chosen to do it is very destructive. I mean, after a campaign of insulting virtually every group, I'm going to get to the end and I'm going to insult the very democratic traditions of, of elections and, and peaceful transfer. Why of does that matter? Well, Why does it matter? I mean, he's going to he's going to if he loses, he's going to have lost. Uh, what what difference does it make? It doesn't matter what Trump says, but um, he shouldn't be whipping up animosity in in. Do you think voters. he's trying to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I think he's trying to. Now, the peaceful transfer of power is not just because of presidents and candidates. It's also something that voters have embraced. And so I don't think he's going to be successful in it, in, in whipping up a lot of animosity, but you shouldn't try to do it at all. I, I, you is know, there danger in, in it? I think there is. I lived in Honduras. It was a military dictatorship, you know. Nobody could vote for anything. I, you, I came to understand things I took for granted about our, our system, and I don't think you should be trying to tear down a central pillar of our system in the way he's trying to do. And uh, do you think that uh, he you, – you, there's been this discussion about – Putin and his. Yeah. Do you think that he is an authoritarian at heart? I mean, do you think that's his fundamental view? I do. And look, it's. I, I think he he has an authoritarian view. The the Putin discussion is very real. I mean, first time in my lifetime, a foreign government is taking active steps that have been completely verified to try to influence the outcome. You think Putin wants election. Donald Trump to be president? The, at a minimum, they're trying to influence and destabilize and raise questions about the legitimacy of the election. But I have no doubt that he would rather have Donald Trump as president than Hillary Clinton, because Hillary Clinton will be tougher. One of the you are on the foreign uh, on the foreign, foreign yeah. relations committee. You're on the the armed services committee. Mm-hmm. You've been a champion in the Senate for uh, compelling presidents to get an yeah. authorization uh, authorization for the use mm-hmm. of military force. We've been operating since 2002 under the one that was uh, yeah and. Uh, so far, that hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, are you going to continue to advocate yeah. for that within the administration? I am. I am. And Hillary, Hillary agrees with me on this. We may have a slightly different take on how you would define the constitutional legal powers of the legislative and executive branches. But Hillary believes that this, this current battle against ISIS, but against non-state terrorism more generally, that, that's based on a 60-word authorization that was passed on September 14, 2001 
when about 70% of the current Congress wasn't there when that vote was cast. And it's morphed and changed in terms of what the battle is, and the groups are changing, that it's time for Congress to get back in the game and, and refine and revise that authorization and really look at what it is to be engaged in military action against non-state terrorist groups. She really believes Congress has to do that because our troops deserve to, to know that Congress has their back. But probably if you think about it, David, the challenge that we're grappling with now is most of our thoughts and our doctrines about war were really developed in the notion of war was state v. state. Um, but, you know, we're, we're at war now against a non-state actor that doesn't follow the Geneva Conventions, that doesn't follow any of the normal rules. And so it's time for us to take that now outdated authorization and really think about what we are confronting and work together to reach some legislative executive accord about what it is we're doing. And Hillary has said that that's something she wants to do very early in her administration. Um, you know, there was a story, this whole WikiLeaks thing has been central, and I can't let you go without yeah. asking. Julian Assange was menacing you yeah. and saying that he's, <laughs> stand by, Tim Kaine, I've got some stuff that's going to rock your boat. Do you have- I think he said, I think what he said is, I've got a surprise. Well, I think we got a surprise for WikiLeaks, which is, uh, you may think that you can uh, destabilize an American election, but you're going to find that you can't. And do you have uh, concerns about it? No, I don't. Do you have any idea what he's talking about? It's, I, I don't, but I suspect it's a big yawn. Tim, uh, b- before I let you go, um, tell me uh, what you are uh, in a relentlessly optimistic person. Yeah. New Yorker did a piece saying the radical optimism yeah. <laughs> of Tim Kaine. Um, what makes you optimistic in the midst of this very troubling environment in which people are very negative about the direction of the country, negative about our politics, negative about our politicians. Uh, what gives? Yeah. Give, give me a note of optimism. Well, I, I, you know, I'm an optimistic person, probably by by uh, inclination and by will. So, by inclination, I, I guess I really view life as fleeting and mortal and painful. Uh, that's the that's the base. And so every day then I meet people I really like and are really cool. And so I'm continually meeting people that cause, you know, that, that are kind of exceeding expectations. I, I think I do have a little bit of a kind of a dark Catholic view of, of our mortality, but I'm meeting wonderful people doing wonderful things every day that are always putting me in a good mood. So that's kind of by inclination. I just see people doing great things and they put me in a good mood. And then my mom said something to me once too that I'd never have forgotten. She, my parents are not big advice givers, but I once was making some smart-ass comment, you know, when I was a teenager, and my mom just kind of caught me, and she said, you know, you got a choice to make in life. Do you want to be right or do you want to do right? And if you want to be right, be a pessimist and be a sarcastic person because often things will work out like you think. But if you want to do right, you better be an optimist. And she kind of put it as an existential choice. Would you rather be right or do right? And I decided, you know, I'd rather do right. And I've been an optimist ever since. Well, it's uh, been a pleasure to know you all these years. Yeah, David, you too. I wish you the best of luck uh, in the future. And thank you so much for being here. I'm really glad we could have this talk. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 